We want to now meditate on that great biblical theme of the temple of God. First, our reading will come from Ezra chapter 1, which is going to be found on page 458 of your pew Bible. And then afterwards, we'll turn to Haggai 1, which will be the main focus of our time together this morning. First, we give our attention to Ezra 1. Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it into writing. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of this place, his silver and gold with goods and with beasts besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah, and Benjamin, and the priests, and the Levites, and everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus, the king of Persia, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out of Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them. Thirty basins of gold, one thousand basins of silver, twenty-nine censures, thirty bowls of gold, four hundred and ten bowls of silver, and one thousand other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were five thousand four hundred. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. And then now we also turn to the prophecy of Haggai, which is on page 941 of your pew Bible. So we'll invite you to turn to Haggai chapter 1. This will be the main focus of our time together. In the second year of Darius the king, In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel the son of Shelatile, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time, is it a time, for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, well, this house lies in ruins. Now, could that, now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you will never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm, and he who earns a wage does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. 
and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord God of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatile, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all their remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. This is the word of the Lord. May we receive it with a believing heart. People of God, I want to consider for this month of November the prophecy of Haggai. But before we even begin to look at this book, we are struck with an immediate challenge, aren't we? Just finding it. Yes, you are allowed to laugh. At only two chapters, 38 verses, Haggai is an often missed book. But it is an important book. It's important because Haggai deals with an issue that's commonly felt in congregations and in people all around the world. The subject of our priorities. See, the people of Israel had long been in Babylonian captivity, 70 years, where they one of the themes of their captivity was they longed to worship the Lord in His temple again. We just sang Psalm 137. A psalm that was written during the Babylonian captivity. Listen to this in verse 1. By the waters of Babylon we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Zion, the city of Jerusalem, where the temple was. But what made Zion special wasn't how beautiful it was, its walls, its citadels. What made Zion special was that God dwelt with His people in the temple. But as we know, in 586 B.C., Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar sieges the city of Jerusalem. And in 2 Kings 25, the temple is burned and each stone is toppled over. He takes all of the ornaments, the gold, the silver, the bronze, and he slaughters the priests. It's important for us to remember that in the Old Testament, the way that you had communion with God, the way that you worshipped Jehovah aright 
was in the temple. How would you have felt to be a captive and to see your church burn? To see whatever valuables were there taken and your pastor slaughtered. For them, it would have felt in some ways that God himself had been destroyed. That their religion had failed. That he had failed. And so we see this major theme we read in Ezra, Haggai, Psalm 137. This major theme of the Babylonian exile. We want to return to Judah. To God's dwelling place in Jerusalem. And worship our God. And God hears their prayer, doesn't He? And He moves Cyrus's heart. And He allows them to return home. For what reason? Ezra 1 verse 2. To rebuild the temple of God. This should have been their joy. This, should have, this is everything they've looked forward to. Our God is not dead. Our religion is not dead. We can have communion with God again. But Haggai tells us that the people's hearts had become apathetic. That over the passage of time, they had become indifferent to the things of God. And after 17 years, after their return from exile, the temple is still not rebuilt. So the Lord raises up a prophet, Haggai. And Haggai gives a call. This is our theme this morning. He gives a call, a trumpet sound, if you will, that the people of God need to prioritize the Lord in restoring His house. A call to prioritize the Lord in restoring His house. I want to show you three things this morning from Haggai chapter 1. I want to show you complacent builders in verses 1-2. through In verses 3-11, through we see selfish builders. And in verses 12-15, through we see obedient builders. That's complacent builders, selfish builders, and obedient builders from Haggai chapter 1. We see in those first two verses, the exiles were not prioritizing the work of the Lord. And so God raised up a man named Haggai. You see that in verse 1, his name. Now we actually know very little about this prophet other than the fact that his name means of the feast day, born on the feast day, which is fitting because when he gives this prophecy, it would have been in the time of around August in the summer months where they would have had a feast. But other than that, the book records nothing of his family. It records nothing of his history, who he was, no personal experiences. But if you go home this afternoon and you read through the book of Ezra, you will see that he is a leading figure in that post-exilic reformation. But one of the most interesting things I think about Haggai is that he meticulously dates the prophecies 
that he gives. He gives four prophecies in this book in chapter 1, verse 1, 2, verse 1, 2, verse 10, and chapter 2, verse 20. And each of his prophecies are recorded the exact date of when it was given. And we see in verse 1 that this prophecy, this first prophecy, is given 17 years after their return from exile. So when we read verse 1, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month of the first day of the month, and then we come to find out the temple is not rebuilt, the reader is supposed to ask, what happened? What could be so important that you would not prioritize the work of the Lord for 17 years? And Bible history tells us, we know that when they returned from captivity, they were still under their captors. They weren't a free nation. And after Cyrus died, the next king of Persia ceased the work on the temple, Ezra 4, verse 6. And then the second king after Cyrus uh, also ceased, Ezra 4, 21, the work on the temple. And before you know it, the temple has laid in ruins for 14 years. And if you've ever been part of a committee that wants to do a good thing, what happens when it's tabled? And pushed back. And pushed back. And pushed back. Before we know it, that good thing dies, right? See, the problem that Haggai is addressing is that the zeal for the work of God has grown cold over the passage of time. And I don't know about you, but when I read through Haggai, it doesn't seem to me that these people don't love God. It doesn't seem to me that they don't care. But the circumstances of their life have so discouraged them that they no longer have their priorities straight. Think of it like this. After being exiled for 70 years, they return home to a ruined city. An impoverished land. A burnt temple. As soon as they get there, they're attacked by the Samaritans. Two successive kings arrest their work. They're discouraged. And after years of discouragement, they don't have a heart to keep going. They don't have a heart for the work anymore. And we know how that feels, don't we? Sometimes we feel the same way. Work. We put in the work for our children. We put in the work for our spouses. We continue to pray and to do the work for our church, for our workplaces. And then there's no fruit. And the temptation is to give up. What we see here is actually a wonderful example of what discouragement does. Discouragement often leads to complacency. And here's why this date in verse 1 is so important, brothers and sisters. I mentioned that there were two kings after Cyrus who prohibited the Jews from rebuilding. 
Ezra 4, 6, Ezra 4, 21. The name of the first king who prohibited them from rebuilding their temple, his name was Ahasuerus. The name of the second king of Persia who prevented them from building the temple, his name, and this is a real tongue twister, Artaxerxes. But who is the king who is mentioned in verse 1? Not Ahasuerus, not Artaxerxes, Darius. A new king. A king who was not prohibiting them from rebuilding the temple. In fact, Darius is a king who encouraged the rebuilding of the temple. It says he found the original decree of Cyrus and then he reissued that decree that the Jews should rebuild the temple. What Haggai is saying in verse 1 is that there is nothing standing in their way to rebuilding the temple of God any longer. In fact, for two and a half years, there's been no delay. And there's no saws sawing. There's no hammers ringing. The people no longer prioritize this work. We see discouragement has led to complacency. And so we know, don't we, what happens when we don't prioritize the Lord in our own lives. It leads to alienation. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, We see this in Saul's life, David's life, Solomon's life. When they don't have their priorities straight, they they become alienated with God. And so the prophet says in verse 2, the Lord of hosts says, these people, not my people. Often throughout the Old Testament, when God speaks about His covenant people, He calls them my people. But they have become alienated with God. These people. You can hear the disappointment in his voice. These people say the time has not yet come. They have excuses. Lord, there was opposition to your work. Lord, the cost was too great. Lord, it's been so long. Lord, we've been busy. We've been raising our children. We've been doing whatever it is, soccer practice and work. We've been discouraged. You sound like legit excuses. But God says, He doesn't mention those excuses. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. God knows the excuses. He's heard the excuses. But He says the real cause of the delay is you. O Israel, you say it's not time. Your hearts are cold. I am not the priority. Complacence, or excuse me, discouragement leads to complacency. One word of application here, congregation, is isn't it interesting that the longer the Jews went without the temple, 
the longer they went without seeing the sacrifices and seeing the face of God in that place, the less they felt their need for Him. Likewise, the longer a Christian goes without seeking God, the longer we go without looking to the cross of Christ and His sacrifice, the less we will desire Him. There's an old saying, some of you probably know it, absence makes the heart grow fonder. That's not the case with God. Absence does not make us grow fonder to the Lord. It makes our hearts grow harder to the Lord. We are called by God into His presence. Called to seek His face in word and sacrament. Called to be in His presence. And through that obedience, through that duty, if you will, God produces desire within us. We see this actually in Luke 24 when Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with those brothers and he explains to them the word of the God and what word of God and what happens to their hearts. You remember? When he reveals himself, he sa- they say, was our hearts not inflamed by his words? We draw close to Christ. We see his wounds. We see his cross. We see his face. And our hearts are inflamed with love. So I want to encourage you, congregation, today, keep pressing into God. Keep seeking the face of God. Even though sometimes religion feels like a duty, not a delight. Remember that through that duty, God produces delight. And so the Lord, we see through the prophet, is calling them to the, his religion once more. Notice with me also the selfish builders this morning. The Lord, through the prophet, shows, their, shows them their complacency by giving them an analogy. He compares the ruined state of his temple to the luxurious state of their homes. In verse 2, the Lord says in our ESV translation that the house has not been rebuilt. But if you jump to verse 4 and verse 9, the Lord makes it very clear it's not just not rebuilt, it's lying in ruins. No scaffolding has been put up. No attempt has been made. It's ruined. While their homes, verse 4, are paneled. Now there's nothing wrong with paneling, but the word paneled here actually speaks of luxury. In 1 Kings 6, verse 9, the same word is used to speak of the luxury, the glorious nature of Solomon's home. In 2 Kings 7, verse 3, in Jeremiah 22, verse 14, this same word is used to, to speak of the magnificence of the palace and God's temple. This paneling seems to suggest that at least for some, they were living in luxury while God's house lay in ruins. And I think the point is clear, congregation, that rather than articulating their faith by erecting a place where God could dwell among them, God has said, you are concerned for your own well-being. The time to serve the Lord had not yet come. 
because they needed that time for their own interests. In other words, they were being selfish. So the Lord says, look with me in verse 5. Consider your ways. From the Hebrew, it could literally be translated as set your heart upon your ways. Look into your heart. What does selfishness get you? And we all know selfish people. Sometimes we are selfish people. We're only concerned with more money, more possessions, more pleasure. What does it get you? You might have a lot of stuff, but you will not have more contentment. And the prophet actually illustrates that with four examples. He says, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Whether this is referring to something that's literally happening, or whether it's referring to something that's metaphorically true, is not the point. The point is this. Enough is never enough when we live for ourselves. Enough is never enough for the selfish person. Put it another way. If your priority is yourself, you will never be satisfied. You won't have contentment. And you won't have the blessing of the Almighty God. One of the most famous examples of this is one of the richest Americans who ever lived. Remember John Rockefeller. Who in 1937 was valued at, estimated value, $1.4 billion. Once he was asked by a reporter, how much money will make you happy? His response was, just one more dollar. Look, congregation, I'm sure he had fancy cars. I'm sure he had tasty foods and expensive clothing. I'm sure that he had all the luxuries that this world could afford him. And if we were there alive at nine, in the 1930s, we might look at him and say, he's got it all. But in 2022, that food is dust. Those clothes are, are, rot, are rotten. They're moth-eaten. That car is rusted. It doesn't have a lasting value Pursuing our own pleasures does not bring contentment. The Lord is teaching us here that if you live for yourself, there is no contentment for you. There's no lasting value for you. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Consider your heart. What is it set upon? Not only this, the Lord again says in verse 7, consider your ways. This is the second admonition. Look into your heart. And verse 8 is really the center, the heartbeat of this passage. You could almost translate this as consider this way. That's your way. Consider this way. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. 
here the prophet very strikingly reveals why God was displeased with his people. He wasn't displeased that they had a nice house. He wasn't displeased that their enemies caused so much disruption in the work. He was displeased because they didn't seek to please Him. They didn't seek to glorify Him. In other words, He wasn't their priority. Something that's lost on us in the passage of time is the importance of the temple. Why does God even care about this temple? He exists in heaven where the streets are made with gold. There's angels sitting on clouds playing harps. Why does He care about this earthly structure? He exists in all places. Uh, One of the Psalms says, Where shall I go from Your Spirit? You can't get away from God. He is in all things. And then not only this, the kicker on, all t- on top of it, in Acts 7, verse 48, God is said not to dwell in temples made with human hands. So what's the point of this thing? Why does God even care? John Calvin helpfully says this. The visible temple preserved for the Jews their hope of the future Messiah. That the temple was given to point them to their heavenly home and to the way to heaven in the Lord Jesus Christ and to worship God not only for His salvation from Egypt, not only for salvation from Babylon, but worship Him for their salvation from their sins. The temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood, all point towards that true temple. As Jesus says in John 2, the true sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin from the world. Our true High Priest who offers salvation freely by His blood. It's as if God is saying in verse 8, if you knew the salvation I offered you, if you knew of My Son who will come in the flesh and die for you, the coming Messiah, you would seek to please Me. You would seek to glorify Me. This shows is a lack of gratitude a lack of love for the Lord, they would put their selfishness over His pleasure and His glory. And so God didn't bless them. Through the prophet, He says, when you brought home the harvest, I blew it away. The heavens withheld their rain, the earth its produce. Not only does a selfish life not lead to contentment, but a selfish life doesn't even lead to an earthly prosperity. And you might say, well, I know people who are rich and selfish. 
But the point is that when the stock market, if the stock market crashes and your wealth is gone, if an early death can take everything from you, then you're not rich. Even Jesus said, you need to store up treasure in heaven that cannot be stolen or destroyed. Congregation, consider your own heart this morning. I know that we are often prone as humans to put off God, to put off religion. And we are content to give God the scraps of our day, of our energy, of our lives. Is it also true of us that we say it's not the time to serve the Lord? It's not time because here's one that was true when I was a young man. Still am, but younger. It's not time because it's hockey season. Is it not time to serve the Lord because it's basketball or football season? I'll serve Him the rest of the year. It's not time to serve the Lord because I'm too young and I need to experience life and I need to go see what things are like. Is it not time to serve the Lord because work demands too much of me? The prophet Haggai calls us this morning to consider in our own hearts if God has the priority. Christ likewise also says, Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. We are called to seek first the kingdom of heaven. So we need to consider our ways. Are we complacent? Are we selfish? Or are we obedient builders? Obedient builders. We see this in the last section of Haggai chapter 1. Obedient builders. You know, Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple, the one that which Nebuchadnezzar burned and toppled over. He said, listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place and listen to the plea of your servant and your people Israel. And when they pray towards this place, listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Zerubbabel and Joshua And the people respond to Haggai's sermon, which exposes them. And they believe this promise. They repent and ask for forgiveness. Notice in verse 12, it says they fear the Lord. Now, younger people here, fear is an old word, but it doesn't mean to be afraid, but it means to honor and to respect or to receive that word as a higher authority than themselves. By fearing the Lord, they reorganized their lives. They cut away other things that were taking their time and saying it wasn't time to serve the Lord, and they put the God of heaven at the top of their priority list. That's what it means to fear the Lord. But notice also their confidence. Twice in verse 12, it says, their God. All the re- with all the remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord 
their God had sent them. Remember back in verse 2, God says, of these people, He disassociates with them, in a sense. But in verse 12, they are grabbing hold of God. You are our our God. They, like Jacob, are wrestling with the angel. I will not let you go until you bless me, O Lord. They're seeking His pleasure, His glory, claiming Him as their own. Sometimes people say, I can't go to God until I have a divine right. I can't go to God until I have some revelation, some Pentecostal vision. But look here. It delights the Lord when His people grab hold onto Him. How do we know this? That God is happy when people seek His face? Look at the second word He gave to through the prophet. Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. This change in tone from rebuke to comfort, it's so beautiful. Think about this this morning, my friends. They had not even begun to work. They had not begun to rebuild the temple. And God's stern and disapproving tone changes to tenderness. He hastens to forgive. He hastens to comfort them. And he doesn't say, I will be with you when you start doing what I want, when you start obeying me, when you start building. He says, I'm already with you. When our hearts are turned to the Lord in faith, God is quick to receive us instantly to bring us back into the fold of God. And so they received this word of comfort. And the Lord immediately begins to stir in their hearts to work to rebuild the temple. That's those last two verses there. Having been reminded of their salvation. Reminded of what the temple stood for. Reminded of the sacrifices and the point of the temple to point them to heaven. To point them to the Lord Jesus Christ. A life of complacency was turned into a life of gratitude. Congregation, as we conclude this morning, are you struggling with complacency? Where you're at in life, the discouragements that beat you down, hasten to the presence of God. Hasten to that secret place where you can see Him with the eyes of faith. To know that God has done it all for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And hear His word of prophecy. I am with you. He will not leave you or forsake you.
but He is with you in the Lord Jesus. Final word of application here. Every single one of us is called to the service of God. No one is exempted because of age, gender, race, history, background. God is calling you. Obviously, there are no walls to build here. Thankfully, on a cold day like today, we have these walls already up. But the kingdom of God needs to be built in our lives, in our homes, in our families, in our churches. How is the Lord calling you to serve one another? How is the Lord calling you to serve here at Trinity United Reformed Church? How is the Lord calling you? What ways can you serve the Lord? Seek first the kingdom of heaven. So let's conclude. The Lord shows us through His prophet that complacency and selfishness are not the way to blessedness. Seeking His face and placing your hope in the Messiah to come, the Lord Jesus Christ is the way to blessedness. The temple prefigured His body. The sacrifice prefigured His cross. The priesthood prefigured His work. Christ has come so that God would accept sinners by His grace. God is waiting. And He is gracious to meet the wanderer. And before we even begin to labor for His service, God pronounces to His people, I am with you. Amen. Let's pray. Merciful God, we do give You thanks for the Word that You inspired through Your prophet Haggai. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be a people who prioritize the work of the Lord. Thank You, Lord, for Your promises unto us that were prefigured in the temple and then realized in the Lord Jesus Christ that You have been pleased to give us the kingdom of heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would prioritize Him, we would prioritize His work in and through our lives. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.